0: HaShem Naaseven Atziah, Shur Torah Hashem Wonderful uh, holiday season We had a nice Sukkot, Simcha Torah Yom um, Kippur Rosh Hashanah was uh, Amazing time to get connected to Hashem Get connected to family Good time to learn a little bit Say uh, some time off Uh, But from some of the stories that I'm hearing from people that are coming back from the uh, so-called break uh, or uh, whatever you want, you know, the holiday season, it seems like it was a good time to make a lot of big sins. Instead of doing tshuva, people are um, falling into digging themselves a deeper hole, uh, making more mistakes. And unfortunately a lot of it is because of the uh, horrible leadership that we have in many places um, that simply has forgotten God and forgotten the Torah that's written and that's why I always insist to you guys that if you're ever going to spend time other than obviously my own shiurim if you're ever going to learn from a book If you're ever going to watch a lecture online, you have to make sure that you're listening to something that's worthwhile your time. And I don't mean worthwhile your time because you're entertained by it. Entertained by it, there's a lot of things to be entertained by. I'm talking about things that are going to actually help you change your life, but for a good reason. Now, a lot of people like to watch things like TED Talks. And TED Talks could be very interesting. The problem is that many of them are complete shtuyot, a complete nonsense that are based on somebody's thesis or theory, their thought of how things should be or could be, if we did this and if we did that. If you change your life based on what someone's told you they think things should be, you're a fool. You're a bigger fool than them. And the reason why is because they're telling you themselves, I think. that think should be, could be, maybe. Meaning they themselves don't know. They just think, maybe, should be, could be. And you change your life based on the could be and would be. You're the sucker in the room. A person needs to know that if they're going to change their life, they need to change their life for something that's certain. Not theoretical. Not a maybe. Not a should be. And not a could be. It has to be something certain. If you're not certain, don't do it. Don't do it. The problem is that with certain parts of life, It takes a long time to be certain. So you have to, at that point, have blind faith. But even blind faith requires a little bit of common sense. You can't just have blind faith about anything and anyone. If the bank robber friend of yours, tells you, listen, can I borrow your car? I'll be back in five minutes. Having blind faith that your friendship is going to hold you, is going to come back in five minutes, makes you a bigger fool than he is for stealing. You can't have blind faith in a known criminal. You also can't have blind faith in someone that has an agenda. If someone is trying to sell you a book is tell you, listen, I have this diet plan, and the diet plan has XYZ and it guarantees XYZ results and XYZ time and XYZ this and XYZ that. Okay, what is it? Oh, it's in the book. You cannot have blind faith that for sure what he's saying is true, and you're just gonna follow it. You could believe it if you choose to, but you're assuming. You cannot say it's 100%. This is valid, verified. Just because he walks around like uh, one of these statues from Greece, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that he used his own diet. There was a uh, certain person called himself a rabbi. He goes around and uh, he gives shuim about Parnassah. Zgula de Parnassah. he's someone you know, people think he's a Kabbalist. Think people think he's a Kabbalist. And he has Shu after Shu, Shu after shiur, teaching people different Zgulo, different little magic tricks. For Paul And Rabbi Fahim says it works. What he's saying, this 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 Kabbalist, who's not really a Kabbalist. What he's saying, it works. Only problem is it only works for him. Why? Every shoe he charges thousand, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand dollars. So it works for his panasah. For his panasah, it's perfect. This is panasa. For the fans, uh, for the people that are showing up, they're just the suckers in the room. They're just the suckers in the room. So, if someone has an agenda, your common sense detector should tell you, oop, Already 50% possibilities out of the window. Why? Because there's an agenda. There's a, there's a bias. There's a bias. In Judaism, in Torah, you're not allowed to have a bias if you're going to be a judge. Because if you have a bias, it's called nagua. Already we know that your judgment is going to be not 100% kosher. Thank you. Excuse me. Your judgment is not going to be 100% kosher. For example, if someone goes to the bed dean excuse me, and on the way, he doesn't know who the judges are going to be. He doesn't know who the judges are going to be. But on the way to the bed dean, he opens the door for somebody, some big rabbi. He opens the door for him. He says good morning to him. And they strike up a couple of conversation. And then later on, they go inside to the bedding room, into the court. And he finds out, oh, the guy I've been opening the door for and you know, and, and talking to and how you doing, who you do, 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 all the nice conversation. Oh, he's the judge. What does the judge have to do? Judge has to recuse himself from the case. The judge, the Jewish judge, the dayan, has to remove himself from the case. Why? I like him. But you don't know him. Yeah, but I know him just enough that I don't have anything against him. And I know him just enough that I have things in favor of him. He's a nice guy. He opened the door for me. He's very kind. He said nice things to me. I like him. One time I went to a bed Dean And uh, the uh, person I was going to the bed dean with was concerned concerned. Why was he concerned? Is because this, one of the Dayanim, one of the Dayanim on the Bedin, invited me to speak at a shul. Invited me to speak at a shul. Or someone invited me to speak at a shul. And the guy was concerned, oh, maybe you know Rabbi Yaron, and maybe you're going to rule in his favor, or maybe you're going to rule against me because of that. So the Rabbi said, listen, I didn't invite him. I don't even know the guy. But the Tequila likes him. They invited him. I don't know him yet. So when we have the trial, when we have the the, the case, at that point, I'm still not going to know who he is. I'm only going to find out after. I'm only going to find out after the, the case. Point is that even if, if he invited me, if the judge, if the, one of the judges invited me to go speak, he wouldn't be able to, to, and he actually liked the speech, and he liked me and so on, he wouldn't be able to be a judge on the case. Why? Because it's a little bit of favoritism. It's a little bit of favoritism. So, every Jew has to be a judge for themselves also. Of course, they have to have a rabbi that's going to tell them if their judgment is right or wrong. You cannot be a judge for yourself on, by yourself. But nonetheless, you have to be a judge on your own to judge yourself and understand that there are certain things that you can do, certain things that you cannot do. Now, One of the things you cannot do is you cannot decide to move forward with something if there's a bias. You have to go and you have to decide based on things black and white. There's black and white. You have to decide true or false, good or bad. That's what you have to decide things on. If there's a bias, if there's some type of an emotional uh, attachment to it, a sentimental issue, something there, already we have a problem. A lot of women that have a problem with some of the things that we say in the shiurim, usually if they're intellectually honest and they allow us to actually have go through the facts and address the facts, eventually they arrive at the same truth that we said in the shiurim, just in a different way. Just maybe in a softer approach, maybe we just have to explain it in a different way. But if someone is looking for excuses, then it doesn't make a difference what you say. Even if you show him, even if you show her that the biggest poskim in history said what I said. All I did is repeat it. Even if you show her that the biggest rabbis in the last thousand years said the same thing, and I just repeated it. In fact, even if you copy and paste what they said and you send her, it's still not going to change anything. Why? Because a woman that is biased, she's automatically going to use her emotions. And once her emotions are attached, there's no common sense whatsoever. All the common sense goes in the garbage when emotions are in control. You could tell a person, listen, it's it's pig though. It's not allowed. It says in the Torah, it's not allowed. No, no, but I like him. He's a cute pig. Okay, I understand you like the pig and he's cute, but he's not allowed. It says in the Torah, pasuk. Moshe Rabbeinu just came to my house and he told me. Doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make a difference. Why? Once your emotions are involved, everything goes in the garbage. So, as I said, when you're going to make certain decisions. Generally, you're supposed to look for sources. You have to look for something that's reliable. But that's not always possible. It's not always possible to always have black and white. Sometimes you have to rely on someone. And the reason why is because to find out whether something is good or bad, true or false, takes too much time. You cannot afford to lose. For example, somebody goes to the doctor and the doctor says, Listen. Uh, you have a a serious infection and uh, you have to take this antibiotic. The guy says, "Uh, thanks doc, I appreciate it, but until I know how this antibiotic works, I'm not taking it. Doctor, what is the doctor going to tell you? By the time you learn how the antibiotic works, you have to go to high school over again, take biology classes. Then you have to go to college again, take biology classes and chemistry classes. Then you have to go to med school and science and this and that. You have to go to another 12 years worth of school at least, and then another 5 or 6 years worth of experience. Meaning it's going to take you almost 20 years to figure out how this antibiotic works. By the way, buddy, if you don't take the antibiotic in 2 weeks, you're going to die. Right now it's a small little tiny infection. It's a little abscess. But... One thing if you don't know about, anti, about about infections is they grow. They grow much faster than cancer. Much faster than anything else. Once you have a person has an infection, it literally doubles and quadruples in size rapidly. That if you don't take care of this infection, death from the smallest infection. An infection in the finger. Infection, a tiny little infection under the nail. A tiny little infection under anywhere in your body, in the tooth, can cause death. That's why they used to amputate. Before there was antibiotics, as soon as they saw there were certain infections, they would cut off the leg. They would cut off the arm. They would cut off the finger. Why? We cannot afford for the infection to spread. There's no antibiotics in those days. No antibiotics. There's no cure. Cut off the piece. cut, Cut off the body. Meaning that the tiniest, smallest infection finished. So... I understand you want to know how the antibiotic works, how amoxicillin works, and how the all of the other antibiotics work. I understand you want to know. But by the time you know, you're already going to be dead ten times over. So what do you do in a situation like this? You have to trust. You have to use your common sense. You have to trust someone reliable. Who's reliable? The doctor. If he's not reliable, why'd you go to him? If he's not reliable, why did you go to him to diagnose you? If you went to him to diagnose you, if you went to her to diagnose you, that means automatically, by default, you said, you, sir, you, ma'am, doctor, are reliable. Not only to diagnose me, but to treat me. But if you're not going to trust the doctor, what's the point of going? I never understood that. People go to the doctor, the doctor gives a diagnosis, says, no, 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 I don't think he's a good doctor. So why'd you go? Uh, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Why'd you go then? Why'd you go to somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about? Maybe, maybe you're, maybe there's something wrong with you. You're going. If you went to somebody and they said something and you don't like it, say okay, I don't like it. I don't like what they said, but it's true. But if you say, I don't know, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. I don't think he, she knows what she's talking about. then maybe you're crazy. Maybe you need to go to a different doctor, the mental institution doctor, because you keep going to doctors who don't know what they're talking about. Why don't you go to the guy who knows what he's talking about then? So, here Abu Abut a person needs to realize there are certain times there's just not enough time. There's not enough time to go find out the answer for yourself. You cannot risk it. You have to rely on somebody that is an expert because they have given you and others the reason to rely on them. If they have it, then why would you go to them in the first place? So, as much as we would always like to see things black and white, it's not always possible. It's not always possible. If it is possible, the responsibility is on us to go find it. If it is possible to find out a black and white answer, the responsibility is on us to go find out what it is. If it's possible for us to verify the reliable party's answer, the responsibility is on us to go find out and verify it. But if it's just going to take too much time, then we just got to take their word. When the sages tell us, delve into it and delve into it because everything is in it. In the previous Mishnah, in the last Mishnah in chapter 5 of Pirkei Avot, when I said that delve into it and delve into it because everything is in it, what does that mean? That means that they delved into it and delved into it and they confirmed, yes, everything is in it. They're not going to tell you you should delve into it, you should delve into it because everything is in it if they don't really know. They're not going to tell you everything is in it if they're not really sure. Say, delve into it, maybe everything is in it, but maybe not. Maybe what you're looking for is not in it, we're not really sure. If you're going to make such a statement that's going to go on a document that's based on eternity, a document that's going to be valid for eternity, this world, the next world, everything, and you're going to say everything is in it, that means that if somebody says, listen, I'm looking for such and such, it's not in it, you have a problem. You have a problem. If you're saying everything is in it, you, that means you're willing to take this to the bank. You just wrote a check, you better cash it. You better have some money to cover it because you just said everything is in it. Which means that the only way you're going to say such a statement and write it in the Mishnah, the foundation of our Oral Torah, means that you know for sure everything is in it. You verified, you checked not only from your sources, you checked with your own eyes. And you're saying, test me, delve into it yourself. Delve into yourself; you'll see yourself. Everything is in it. Everything is in it. The problem is, Rabotay Karim, is that people think that they can learn Torah casually. They think they can learn Torah like they learn the newspaper. They can read it in passing while they have a cup of coffee, have a few conversations. Check a few stock quotes. Maybe check the mail, pay a few bills, go back to the book. And the Rambama Lava Shalom says this Mishnah, the last Mishnah of Pirkei Avot, specifically is teaching that the Torah cannot be acquired casually. In fact, it teaches that the Torah wisdom is acquired only when a person studies with fear for his teacher. Light reading and superficial study do not produce Torah scholarship. A person that thinks that he could just casually walk into the kolal, walk into the bet Midrash, grab whatever book Has a nice cover. Read a few pages. And then oh. I'm finished. And he's going to know what he's doing in life. He has a serious serious problem. The Rambam says that. A person needs to literally fear his teacher. When he's learning. Whether that teacher is the book. Or the teacher is the rabbi. Wherever he's learning from. He has to fear. Why? Why? Why does he have to fear? What's this obsession with fear? If you're going to understand, if you're going to learn Torah for the right reason, that means you're learning Torah because you want to fulfill the will of Hashem. That means you understand that Hashem is God. And God is not your friend, He's not your buddy. You don't go play tennis with Him on weekends. He's not having drinks with you. That means that you are learning the instruction set of God. Now since you cannot learn all of the rules on your own overnight, you're in a situation where you have to depend and you have to rely on somebody who knows them. Because you can't find out all the rules overnight. You can't verify yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. You have to rely on somebody that does. Which means that whether you're learning from the rabbi face-to-face or you're learning from the rabbi through his book, even if the rabbi was from 900 years ago, the Rambam, even if the rabbi is Rabbi Yosef Karo from 500 years ago, Even if the rabbi is today, it doesn't make a difference. You're learning, you have to have fear. Why? Your whole eternity depends on you understanding what the rabbi said. If you don't, your eternity is in ruins. You misunderstand what's written in the book. You misunderstand what the rabbi said. Your eternity is in ruins. On the other hand... if a person does understand what the rabbi said. But the rabbi misspoke. The rabbi made a mistake. He said yes, and reality is no. You have a verse in the Torah in Sefer Devarim 17, verse 11. It says, according to the teaching that they will teach you, and according to the judgment that they will say to you, shall you do. You shall not deviate from the word, from their word. You shall not deviate from the word that they will tell you right or left. The Chachamim explained to us here, this is one of the foundational sources for rabbinical mitzvot. One of the foundational sources of the oral Torah. One of the foundations that every single Jew needs to know of why they not only should but they must listen to the rabbi because if you listen to the rabbi but the rabbi made a mistake this verse this verse literally says if you listen to him because God said listen to him but he made a mistake even if he made a mistake even if the sage is wrong but you st- and he said right, and you went right, but it really in reality it's left, you don't get judged for it. You're okay. A person needs to know that if he follows what the rabbi says, he follows what the says, even if Shaman said, no, 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 he's wrong. But you listened to the rabbi. Why? Because the rabbi says, you listen to the Listen to the rabbi. you're absolved. But this does not give us a free and clear on everything. This is giving us a temporary release until we find out more. Not that we just choose to listen to him on this, but not listen to him on others. Listen to him here, but listen to somebody else on others. You can't pick and choose the rabbis like you pick and choose uh, your uh, your menu for, 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 for the uh, bar mitzvah. No, no, for, for, for the starters, we're only going to have lomain. For the second meal, we'll have chicken. No, no, you can't You, If you're going to listen to on everything, it's no problem. You're okay. But if you're going to pick and choose and go shopping with your rabbis, then you have a serious problem. So what does it mean to listen to the rabbis? How 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 is it? How afraid were the Chachamim themselves of their own rabbis? This Mishnah, chapter 6, Mishnah number 1, starts the sixth part of Avot, even though it's not part of the original Talmudic tractate of Avot, the Chachamim added this sixth chapter almost 1200 years ago. At least a thousand years ago, we already have uh, or twelve hundred years ago, we have actually a Sidhu from Av- Amram Gaon, Sidhu of Amram Gaon, who used to learn this sixth chapter of Pirkei so it's not like something that was added a hundred or two hundred years ago this is already almost as old as the Gemara itself, it's just the Chachamim said this was not originally part of the Avot tractate But this specific Mishnah, as you'll see from this entire chapter 6 of Pirkei Avot, is very, very long, very dense, an enormous amount of material. Each shiur, we're going to hope to try to complete each Mishnah in maybe four or five shiurim per Mishnah. They're much longer than anything else we've had. They're very, very deep. Um, But this specific Mishnah will give us an understanding, number one, of what kind of fear the Chachamim had of their own rabbis. What kind of honor, respect, connection did they have their own rabbis? And what kind of Torah secrets they got. But more importantly than anything else, how do we get it? If I tell you stories about how the Rambam, Arab Mazuz writes in his book, the Rambam 900 years ago was able to travel from place to place by simply saying one word. is able to go from Spain to Egypt in one second. No plane. He can say one word. And he travels from country to country. He takes you on a plane with everything else. It takes you 15 hours. He does it one word. I tell you those stories, very interesting stories, but it's not going to help you. But if I taught you the word, that's <laughs> going to help you. You can make some money out of it. The point is, Rabotai, is that there is an enormous amount of wisdom in the Torah. There's an enormous amount of secrets in the Torah. How do we get these secrets? Shano chachamim bilshon mishnah Baruch she b'hem The sages taught this chapter, this entire chapter 6, in the language of the Mishnah. Blessed is he who chose them and their teachings. This is not part of the Mishnah per se. This is actually the heading of the Mishnah. Anyone that's been going to shul for some time knows that between Pesach and Shavuot, on Shabbat, it's a minag all across Al-Mishrez, Faradim, Shkenazim, everybody, to go over Perkei In many places, as a matter of fact, in most communities, they actually continue to learn Perkei all the way into Rosh Hashanah. But the way they learn Pekahot is a little different than us. They go superficially through it, just reading the whole chapter. Reading the whole chapter, not delving into the details. There's not enough time, obviously. Not delving into the details, word for word, or at least as we try to go sentence by sentence, understand the deeper meaning of each Mishnah, sources, and so on. But nonetheless, it's a minag of Am Yisrael. a reminder for Am Yisrael that. You have to constantly go over the same Pirkei Avot every year just like you go over the Chumash every year. It's not a once-in-a-lifetime teachings. And as I said, there's a siddur from the 9th century of, of Amram Gaon that from uh, Babylon, Iraq today, that uh, shows that they are actually even in those days 1,200 years ago, they already were going through this sixth chapter of the Mishnah. So it's not like this uh, chapter is something new, like we think new. New in a sense that it wasn't at the same time as the Gemara, where it wasn't part of the Gemara itself. These are all part of the Gemara, but these are all called Baretot, instead of Mishnayot. What's the difference between a Baretah and a Mishnah? The word "breita" literally means outside. Outside teachings. So the Mishnah, which was written by Rabbi Yekadosh Rabbi Judanasi, the Mishnah condensed the Oral Torah into six books, six d'arim, six six uh, tractates. In reality, or six sections, six mishnayot. In reality, the oral Torah is enormous. But we see in the Gemara Masechet Avodah Zarah that just the tractate of Avodah Zarah, Avraham Avinu, that had Torah even before Am Yisrael, even before Matan Torah, 1,500 years almost, or a 1,000 years before Matan Torah, Avraham Avinu already had, he already had uh, the oral Torah. Adam HaRishon had oral Torah. Noah had Oral Torah. Shem Ve'ev had Oral Torah. What do you think uh, when they say that uh, Yaakov Avinu was learning with Shem and Eve for 14 years, what do you think he was learning? Tetris? He was learning uh, Yaron Uven on YouTube. What was he learning? He was learning Torah. He already had the Oral Torah from the beginning. The original Oral Torah that Avraham Avinu had just the tractate of Avodah Zarah. Today, our tractate of Avodah Zarah has five chapters. Five chapters. His tractate of Avodah Zarah, some say it had 600 chapters. Meaning, his Avodah Zarah, his laws of Avodah Zarah was bigger than our entire Gemara. Everything put together. So, when Rabbi Akados Rabbi Anasi, saw the amount of oral Torah that we have, he realized, to write all of it, It's impossible. It's impossible. To write a lot of it is also impossible. Why? It will be too much for any normal person to read all of it. Unless you're me, Chacham. He wanted to write it that for his generation, any average person, any average person will be able to understand it today. Average person in his generation is uh, Moshe Rabbeinu for us. So he wrote the Oral Torah in six Mishnayot, six Sidre Mishnah. From that... We get the Gemara, which explains how they arrived at the Mishnah. But there were certain things that were not included in the Mishnah. There were certain things not included in the Mishnah that were still taught by his students. Students like Rabbi Chia, Students like Rabbi O'Shaya. Students like Bar Kapara. These Tanaim, these holy people... Were the disciples of Rebbe Kadosh and they taught other things, but they were not considered Mishnah, they were considered Bereita. They're considered a Bereita. Not because they were not valid or they were wrong, chas Shalom, no. Simply because Rebbe Kadosh said, This is not part of the teachings that we have to transfer from generation to generation. The Bereitas are not part of this Mishnah. There are certain outside teachings, things that were outside of the main teachings. It's still taught. So the Beretot that Rabbi Chia, Rabbi Yoshaya, Rabbi Kapara and others taught were called Beretot. That's why they're called outside. That's why they're called tot, It's called outside. So who are these people? Rabbi Chia, if you remember, I told you on Oshana Raba, fantastic story about Rabbi Chia. Rabbi Chia was scared that the world was going to lose the Torah. So he took some flax, planted, grew strings, made nets, used the nets to trap a deer, slaughtered the deer in a kosher way because a deer is very difficult to slaughter today. That's why you don't eat deer in uh, restaurants because it's almost impossible to catch them. In a kosher way. Usually, for example, if you want to go catch deer, most people that go uh, hunting, they catch the deer with a bow and arrow, if they're fair. I mean, they could shoot them also, but that's not really fair, at least for the the hunters, for sport. But they do it for sport. They don't do it because they're going to eat the deer, even if they eat the deer. But that's not kosher for Jews. Jews cannot hunt with a bow and arrow or with a gun. The only way that the deer will be kosher is if you catch him with a net and then you slaughter him. And to do that today, almost no one has that type of skill to do such a thing. So you don't—you rarely, rarely will ever find anywhere in the world uh, where any, any restaurant, even the highest, most elite restaurant, uh, kosher restaurant is selling deer. But Rabbi Chia was able, was skilled enough to capture a deer with a net. Then he slaughtered the deer in a kosher way. He gave the kosher meat to poor people. Another mitzvah. mitzvah, Someone who gets a mitzvah, gets a reward, there's another mitzvah. He wanted the one mitzvah to publicize Torah, but while he's doing, while he's publicizing Torah, he's making other mitzvah by feeding the needy. He takes the uh, meat, gives it to the poor people, then he takes the skin, and the deer skin is known to stretch. They say that Yerushalayim is like deer skin. When the skin is not touched, it condenses to be something really, really small. But if you want to stretch the skin of the deer, you could stretch it literally, it seems like endless. How much you could stretch it? They say Yerushalayim is the same thing, because people ask all the time, how is it possible that all of Am Yisrael, when they used to be really, really much bigger than they are today, how they fit? If you look at the Midrashim, how many people were in B'nai were Literally, as many as the, more than the Chinese. Billions of people. No one wants to believe this. No, 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 that's an exaggeration. Why is that an exaggeration? There was billions of Jews. Why is that an exaggeration but splitting the sea is not an exaggeration? Why is that an exaggeration but the fact that there was a, a fire in the image of a lion coming from heaven every day... That's not an exaggeration. So, how do you choose what's an exaggeration in the midrash and what's not an exaggeration? How do you choose? Where does it say this one? Oh, this section, exaggeration section. Put it over there. This section, not exaggeration. Look. Why do you say? Tamim Mashem. Tamim Tie Hashem. I think that's the secret. Be naive, be simple. Accept the Torah as it is. It's it's exaggeration. your mind, that means there's a, there's a flaw in you, not in the Torah. Don't always compare things to what you know. There's a lot more that you don't know than what you know. There's a lot more than what you don't know than you know. So, and that's about anything, by the way. So they say that Yerushalayim, how do they fit all those people? It doesn't doesn't even make sense? Yerushalayim is a special place. Hashem can stretch it like the deer skin. For example, the way that the Midrash explains of how Am Yisrael, literally millions of people will go inside the Bet HaMikdash. And if you look at the measurements of the Bet HaMikdash, it doesn't make any sense that there was even 100,000 people that went in there. But not only they went in, when everyone bowed, when everyone bowed, they were praying. Back in those days, we used to pray like the Arabs pray today, where we would bow all the way on our fours. We'd go all the way on our fours. He says when we would bow, there would still be four Amot. Meaning two feet separation, in front of us and behind us, between everybody. So it's not like today on Yom Kippur you pray and you can't even breathe. The guy next to you his elbow is elbows on your face. The other guy's knees in your face. Everybody's on top of each other right before Neilah. They weren't there the whole day, but before Neilah, everybody's there. No, no. In Bet Midrash, didn't matter. Anytime time during the year, there was always space. Didn't make a difference how many people showed up. Why? This is again supernatural. This is supernatural. Anyone that doesn't want to believe in supernatural simply wants to limit the Torah. They want to limit the Torah to something that they can connect to in their own rational way. And that is a asking for trouble. Why? Because if you're going to try to rationalize everything in a Torah, it's only a matter of time before you become a heretic. It's only a matter of time. Why? Because there are certain things in the Torah that are not meant to be rational. They're godly. They're divine. They're not supposed to be rational for a human being. They're not supposed to be rational for a human being. But if we delve into certain things, we see why certain things in the beginning don't make sense, but later on they do. I'll give you an example. In today's world, if someone... From the crime, they stole some money. What do you do with them after you catch them? touch a question. What do you do with them? Put them in jail. Good. Okay, one person. Okay, the rest of you don't all jump at the same time. Okay, guy he stole. You throw him in jail, right? In America, stealing is almost worse than murder. The guy that murdered sometimes can get a five-year sentence. The guy that stole can get 25 years. Sometimes, even if he stole from no one, he just cheated the system, and he performed something called insider trading. He simply beat the system by doing something that's actually legal in every other business in every other country. They could send him to jail for 25, 30 thirty years—worse than a rapist, murderer, and a pedophile. But the point is, is that the guy goes to jail for five years, right? Now, who does he befriend in jail during those five years? Does he pref- befriend uh, scholars? Does he become friends with uh, famous, you know, uh, uh, scientists, philosophers? Uh, you know, the civilized. Who does he befriend in in jail? Who does he become friends with? Other criminals. Meaning that for five years, everybody exchanges stories. The thief that stole $5,000 exchanges a story from the guy that stole $10,000 and exchanges a story with the guy who stole $10 million and then they exchange story from the murderer and they exchange stories with the pedophile and the rapist and all of the, all of the thieves, all of the murderers, all of the all of, the of this world, all of the garbage of this world, what do they do? They all become friends. Which means they all learn from each other. Which means after five years, he came in there a thief of ten thousand dollars, but he came out an expert sniper, an expert murderer, an expert uh, uh, everything else thief. He's not now. He came in freshman. He left grad student. He came in freshman. He came in. All came in. Well, you know, was a little petty, petty, petty thief. He stole $10,000, me skin. But he came out with a degree from the murderer, from the, all oh, the worst people in the world taught him what to do. Hey, listen, you're getting out soon. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. That is the simple demented system we have in civilized society, civilized society. What does the Torah tell you? If somebody stole from you, somebody stole from you, you caught him. And then you caught him, he doesn't have the money, he spent it already, he went to the casino, he spent it all. He doesn't have the money. What do you do? Throw him in jail? No, you don't throw him in jail. What do you do? You give him a job. What's the job? He becomes your slave. He becomes your slave for as long as it takes for him to pay you back. Now let me ask you a question. Common sense, this doesn't make any common sense. The guy is a thief. Why would I want to invite the thief to my house? Why would I? Why would anybody want to invite a thief to his house? The guy's a thief. I'll give you another question. It's going to answer both at the same time. Somebody, somebody, mistake, mistake. They were working. They were working. And... One guy was on top of the ladder. The other guy was on the bottom of the ladder. And the guy on top of the ladder wasn't careful. He wasn't careful. And the axe fell from his hand. And it went, whoosh, chopped the guy's head off. Killed him. Killed him. Now it's accident. He didn't mean to kill him. He didn't hate him. He didn't mean to kill him. But he killed him at the end. the same result, he killed him. Torah says, what do you do with such a person? You send him to Ira Miklat. To the, to the city of refuge. Set him over there. Set him to the city of refuge. Why? So the family of the guy that was killed doesn't kill him. What's in the city of refuge? Has anybody ever asked? What's in the city of refuge? What is it, like a Taj Mahal? What do they have? They have camping over there. They have jacuzzis. What do they have over there? What that barbecue, all the murderers, accidental murderers have a barbecue. Who'd you kill? Oh, I killed Smith. Oh, I killed Stevenson. Ah, yeah, you know, there were cousins. Wow, what a fuck. Pa- what do you exchange stories? What do you do in a city of refuge? What's in a city of refuge? You know who's in a city of refuge? The Levi tribe. The tribe of Levi is in a city of refuge. Why do we specifically send the accidental murderer to the city of refuge. Why do we send him to the levies? Karim. For the same reason of why we hire the thief. The city of refuge has the levim. The levim or the talmidei chachamim of the generation. They would sit there all day learning Torah. So, what do we want with a person that made a made a mistake? We want him to go kill more people? No, we want him to do chuba. But we figure how we're going to make this guy do chuba. Go send him to a city that everybody's a tzaddik. Everybody's a tzaddik. Even if he's bad originally, if he's surrounded by a bunch of tzaddikim, naturally he's going to be influenced over time, and he's going to become a tzaddik. If he used to be a thief, But now you're gonna hire him. You're gonna work. You're gonna work for you now, and you're a tzaddik. And you're gonna show him good traits. You're gonna help him, and you're gonna give him a nice job. You're gonna treat him well. You're gonna give him a pillow before you use a pillow. Steak. Even if you don't have a steak, everything you have, first you give him, and then yourself. And you teach him good midot. Then you teach him to do tshuva. So that's what initially, when you see the laws of the Torah, it doesn't make any sense. Why? Well, why would you get the thief to come to your house? Why would you get the thief to go to some mountain? Where is he going on vacation? Or uh, the, the murderer, accident murderer, to go on vacation? If you delve into it and delve into it, you see that everything is in it. A fochba ba de A again, I love shalom, mentioned part of this in one of his shurim and the others in different shurim I got from other places. But you see how you connect all of the dots and you realize how B'siyat Nishmaya, Hashemit Barach, connects the pieces and he gives you as a finished dish. But you're not going to get the finished dish overnight. You're not going to get the finished dish if you don't delve into it and look deeper and deeper. The Chachamim, like Rabichiyah, didn't just throw their own thoughts. Rabichiyah, when he put together his plan, he realized that his plan is going to be very difficult. And that's why he chose it. First, he trapped the deer. After planting the flax, he made rope, which by itself, I can't even imagine how many hours that takes just to make rope and a net from the rope and then trapping the uh, deer and making sure he didn't break his neck and so on and so forth and slaughtering it and then giving the meat out. At least eat the meat yourself, I would think, but no, sell it maybe, pay back for the rope, or the investment, something. No, no, no. He's giving away everything free, everything free, everything messed with nefesh. Everything free. Then he takes the skin of the deer, he writes a Sefer Torah on it. Baruch Hashem, we had the merit to write a Sefer Torah one time, 15 years ago. It took the scribe a year. A year. Rav Shaul, in Israel, in Yoshanaim, wrote a Sefer Torah for us. It took him a year to write it. Every day we'd have to go into the mikveh, and then write, mikveh, then write. He cannot write without being. He had mikveh inside his house. Because he had to be pure at all times, pure thoughts, pure everything. It's not just uh, writing because you have nice handwriting. All of the al going to writing a sefer Torah are extraordinary. You must get it from a very, very special person that is reliable and that has. You could verify they're reliable. Not just somebody that's giving you a good price. With sefer Torah. If it's Pasul, you're Machtiya Rabim, you're causing other people to sin. Because they read from it a few times a week. Anyway, he wrote the Sefer Torah. After he wrote the Sefer Torah, Rabbi Chia wrote the Sefer Torah. He went and he taught the Sefer Torah to a bunch of illiterate kids. First, he taught them on the bed. Then, he taught one group of kids Sefer Bereshit. Then, a second group Sefer Shmot. Then a third group, Vayikra, and so on and so forth, in Dvarim. The point is, Rabotai, each group that learned would teach the other one what they learned. Then he wrote the six Sidre Mishnah, the six parts of the Mishnah. And he taught a different group of people. One section, second section, third section, fourth, fifth, and sixth. And then they would teach each other The one that knew Mishnah would teach the ones that learned the the written Torah, oral Torah, written Torah. But all of this was very, very difficult. The Gemara asked, why why did he go through all this headache? Why didn't he just go buy the book? Just go buy the the, the Chumash. Go buy the the Mishnah already. It's already in. You could buy it from a store. You could buy it from some rabbi. You could buy it from a scribe. You could be a tzaddik. Why did you have to do the whole thing yourself? Because Rabbi Chia understood that if you sacrifice, you win. Without sacrifice, you cannot win. What do I mean by winning? Winning eternity. He was scared that Amisleh was going to lose eternity by losing the Torah. So how can he assure that there's going to be enough assistance from heaven that in what he teaches is going to carry for eternity? if he puts the utmost amount of sacrifice into doing it, not just by teaching it, but also by literally starting from square one. Square one from the physical aspect of it, the material aspect of it, of catching and this and then trapping and everything, to teaching it and having the patience and so on. He knew, Rabbi Chia knew, that if there's with Nefesh, there's eternity. So, from someone like this, we need to learn. Someone that's willing to sacrifice their eternity, we need to learn. These Baraytot come from people like him. The sages like him. Now, how did they get to be so extraordinary. The first sentence. The first sentence tells it all. The sages taught this chapter, this entire chapter six, in the language of the Mishnah. Blessed is he who chose them and their teachings. The first thing that we learned: u the chachamim But the second thing is a little odd. It says that the Chachamim, they taught these teachings in the same language as the Mishnah. So the Midrash Shmuel says simply is that the Chachamim that are mentioned here, whether it's the first one, which is Rabbi Mir Baranes, or the others that follow, taught the Mishnah in the same language, in Hebrew, "Svata Kodesh. That's what it means by the language of the Mishnah. But the Gemara Masechet Brachot gives us something even deeper. It says that He led us akin, He us akin, who came before all of these Chachamim. He himself was connected to David Amelich. He was in the lineage of David Amelich. a Zakan used to cut wood for a living. Cut wood for a living. And he would make one coin a week. Call it one zuz a week. Half a zuz he would give his family for food. And shelter and half a zoos, you would pay for learning Torah to go to the Bet Midrash of his rabbi Shmaya Naftalion. Shmaya Naftalion were in the beginning of our almost two years ago. We learned about them. Shmaya Naftalion, the beginning, beginning, beginning. Shmaya Naftalion, we have already in the first chapter of. Per vote we learn about Shmaya and They were in the zugot, the zugot were the pairs the chavot of those days, way, way before, several generations before Rabbi Akiva, several generations before Rabbi Eleazar ben Holkinos, several generations before Rabbi Yochanan, several generations before everybody else. They were in the zugot before the tanaim, before everyone. Hillel was their student, but before he became their student, Hillel Zaken made a very modest living. Half of it he would spend on food, half of it he would spend on learning Torah. In those days, you'd have to go and pay to go learn Torah. Not like today, they have to pay you to come learn Torah. Bribe you with pizza and popcorn and drinks and all the things that uh, Olga and Adis do every week. They cook for you guys a whole meal just to come. No, no. In those days, you have to cook the teacher's meal. So, one day it was snowing and uh, there was no uh, no ability to make uh, to cut the wood. So Helel, as I can, didn't make the zoos. He went to the Bet Midrash and the, uh, the bouncer at the door says, I'm sorry, I can't let you in. He's like, yeah, but I'll pay you back. Like, Listen, if you say i pay you back and I have to do everybody else, I'll pay you back. No exceptions. No exceptions. No money, no Torah. But Helel could not take no for an answer. But at the same time, he can't break the law. So what does he do? He climbed the roof of the Bet Midrash, and there was like a glass dome on top of it and he would listen on top of the roof. That's how much he yearned for the Torah of his rabbis, Shmaiya Naftaliun. He loved that Torah so much that he completely disregarded the fact that it was snowing on top of him, the fact that he may die from the snow, from the cold. He completely disregarded that he was unused so he didn't really have to do it. He could just go home, work the next day, make the money, come back tomorrow for the shiur. You didn't have to go to the shiur. You don't have to go to every shiur. You could skip a shiur. No, everybody skips a shiur. Look, sometimes we have attendance. Sometimes we don't have attendance. Everybody takes advantage. Right, I can't attend. They don't come. He later says, no such thing as, though I don't come. If there's a shiur, I'm there. Yeah, but you're working, but you don't have money. All the excuses in the world, Those excuses are people, other people. Not for Hilel. You want to be Hilal? You can't skip a shoe. But your life's on the line. And if I don't learn Torah, what kind of life do I have anyway? So Hilel climbed the roof and he started listening to the shoe. Little did he know that this event would make him Hilel as a king. But at the same token, before he became as, as I can, that we have in our Torah that all the generations of Am Yisrael learn about every year. Before that, he almost died. How? it snowed and snowed and snowed. Eventually, he was dug so deep he couldn't move, he froze. The next day was Shabbat. Shmai and Haftariyot come into the Bet Mitrash. And they see, usually there's light. There's light they see from the glass dome. But today it was especially dark inside the dome. So they looked up and they saw there's a body of a, uh, there's an image of a body. There's an image of a body. There's a shape of a body over there. They climbed to the roof. They saw there's a person. They took him inside and they, they, they said, "What? Wow, this person was on top of the roof listening to our Torah. It is praiseworthy for us to violate Shabbat to save his life. Somebody like this, it's praiseworthy for us to save his life. And that's what they did. They lit fire to save his life. To warm him up. Can you take that? See that? Right there. You don't see it? Turn it He's my uh, capture. He did it with. The... So yeah, on top of my head the whole time it's annoying. So thank you. So anyway, I know you probably needed to do Chuba, but uh, you could listen from over there like everybody else. So anyway, the they violated Shabbat, but in essence put Shabbat on hold to save his life. And when they found out the story of how he literally put his life on the line just to listen to Shul Torah, they said, from now on, you don't have to pay to come. From now on, you're under us. You're under us, we're going to teach you everything. We're going to teach you everything we know. Shmaya Naftalyon, the Tug Imagine, the Stapler Gaon and the Hafez Chaim. They tell you, you are going to be my student. You don't have to go anywhere. You come with me, you have dinner with me, you have lunch with me, you have breakfast with me. Everywhere I go, you will know you're next to me. This is Gan Eden. Anyone that understands the value of a good teacher, this is Gan Eden for them. Some people don't know the value of a good teacher. Teacher says, well, why don't you come over? They're like, No, I'm busy. Oh, okay. Stay busy. I'll find another student. They don't understand. People don't understand the value of a good teacher today. But some people do. And Hillel did. How do we know he- Hillel understood the value of a good teacher? Because the Gemara, said that Hillel, when he himself would teach, when he himself would teach other people, he would pronounce words just like his teachers. He said things, Bilshon rabu. He said things in the, in the in the tongue of his teachers. What does it mean in the tongue of his teachers? Since Shmaya and Aftalion were both converts. They didn't know how to pronounce certain letters in the, in the Hebrew alphabet. So for example, the word hey. A lot of people don't know how to pronounce the word hey. They pronounce it like Aleph. Instead of saying he, like an H, they say E. Or some people in America, for example, we tell them, say chamo. They say Hamo. No, it's not Hamo, it's Hamo. Americans can't say cha. Like Chanukah, Hanukkah. No, it's not Hanukkah. It's Chanukah. But they can't say it. So he he loved his teachers. He was so connected to his teachers that he started speaking like them. Even but you don't need to though. You don't need to. You know how to say he. You only think you only you don't have a problem with saying cha. You know, you know how to say it. No, 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 no. If my teacher said ha, I'm saying ha. If my teacher said e, I'm saying e. Yeah, but it's wrong. They said it, it's right. If my teacher said it, it's right. That's how glued he was to his teachers. This, any, this is deep. But anyone that understands this, understands what it means to have Fear of the teacher. It's not fear of the teacher is going to punish you, he's not going to talk to you for a week. That's not what we mean. It's having enough respect and kavod for the teacher that literally a person pays attention to every single word that comes out of his mouth and how it comes out. shalom, was a very, very strong person Intimidating teacher, but the same token, all of his students knew he loved them more than he loved anybody else in the world. He literally one time left and said, "Listen, I'm gonna have to go visit my my family. I haven't seen them in almost two years. He didn't see his own family, his own kids, his own wife, his own kids." Because he was teaching day and night, day and night, day and night, in a different city. He said, oh, I haven't seen my wife and kids in almost two years to teach strangers. I'm going to have to go check on them, see how they're doing. One time, they were in the middle of learning a sugyah, in the middle of learning, he gets a... Uh, he gets a... Uh, what's... a message. You know, you know, today you get instant messages on your phone. In those days, they would give you a letter that you got... They give him a letter. Like, you just had a, your wife just gave birth to a boy. He got up, made the blessing a tov and came down and continued learning. And if nothing happened. As if. Okay, I had a boy. Bo Hashem, thank you very much. I'm back to learning. That's a rablssamen. So glued to the Torah, so glued to his students so glued to what he was to Hashem, even what we think is life had its own time frame there was a time and a place for it but even his own students would say it's always unbelievable to see how Rav Wasserman acts once his Rebbe's name is made as soon as the Chafetz Chaim's name is mentioned, he becomes like a little baby. Becomes like a little boy. Every year he goes, visits the Chafetz Chaim for Rosh Shana. Oh, intimidating, big rabbi. Becomes like a little boy. I'm going to visit my Rebbe. I'm going to visit my Rebbe. Oh, Chafetz Chaim. And he would come back, he would tell everybody the stories about Chafetz Chaim. And he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this. And, he did this. and one time... Somebody said, oh, the drashah that the Chafetz Chaim gave this year for Rosh Hashanah, it's the same one he gave last year. Because no, you made a mistake, Rabbi Wasserman said. Last year versus this year is a big difference. What difference? This year he said eight more words. This is how he evaluated his teacher to the extent where he knew... Even though the overall drasha was identical to the average person. And even above average person. Identical drashah, identical speech. One year, next year, roshana, roshana. Chavetz Chayim gave this, gave this. He understood that his teacher doesn't give the same drasha. There has to be difference. What? Eight words difference. I have to study what's the, why there's eight words difference. That's how close he was to his Rebbe. That's someone... that values the wisdom of his Rebbe. A person that values the wisdom of his Rebbe is going to succeed. A person that doesn't has to find a Rebbe that he does. And that's one of the problems that I see today. Most people that don't have a Rabbi, usually the reason is because their ego is getting in the way. Yes, of course, there's a problem in this generation. There's very few decent people out there. There's very few decent rabbis out there. But there's still plenty for you to find someone to guide you. If not one person to guide you on everything, there's at least one person to guide you on each aspect of your life. One person can guide you on your marriage. One person can guide you on your Gemara. One person can guide you on your business. There's plenty of rabbis that can guide you. To not have a rabbi is inexcusable. It's inexcusable. A person can literally live a sinful life his whole life thinking that he's right simply because his ego is too big to have a rabbi. A rabbi is not a teacher, per se, that's just going to tell you yes or no. Allowed, not allowed. A rabbi is also going to tell you a bunch of things you don't like to hear. A rabbi is going to be the one going to check you and make sure that you're going in the right direction. But if you're not giving full disclosure to your rabbi, he's not your rabbi. If you're not listening to everything he says, he's not your rabbi. If you listen to him and five other people, he's not your rabbi. You may admire him, you may like him, but he's not your rabbi. The Chachamim had a big secret. They had a rabbi. Each one of them had a rabbi. And they literally fear their rabbi like the Gemara says. Fear your rabbi like you fear the Shekhinah, you fear Hashem. To such an extent that Baruch The Mishnah says that these Chachamim taught, these Beretot in the language of, their, of the Mishnah Blessed is he who chose them and their teaching. Who's blessed is he? Blessed is he is Hashem. Hashem, it God chose the sages of Am Yisrael as his legitimate messengers, as his legitimate teachers for his nation, as the expositors of his Torah, as it is written. In Sefer Dvarim, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 11, as we said before, you shall not deviate from their word that they say, or that they tell you, right or left. When a person understands the magnitude of Torah, how important Torah is, how important it is to have the right messenger. He'll also understand that the messenger himself is not just a messenger because he wants to be a messenger. He's a messenger because Hashem chose him to be a messenger. Not everybody has the merit to teach Torah. And not everybody that that teaches Torah has the merit to influence people. There are many people out there that teach dafyomi Yomi or teach Halacha or teach uh, Parashat Shavua or teach a lot of different things. But they could be teaching for 20 years to the same group of 10 people. And never going beyond the 10 people. And even the 10 people don't really listen to them. But it's like a Chavuta. They like him. Yeah, yeah, he's my rabbi. But you don't listen to anything he says. Yeah, but I learned with him every week. One time I uh, gave a shiur. It was in Boca Raton. They invited me there. And uh, the first time I had a shiur there, I noticed, you know, the, 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 the rabbi over there said hi, and people, a few people over there that invited me, very happy to see me. We gave a nice shiur. But I noticed... Then after the shiur was practically over, more people showed up, but not for me. I didn't make too much of it. Maybe there is a different event. Maybe this. Maybe that. Some time passed. And it invited me for a second shiur. And this time there was less people that attended my shiur even though they liked me and they invited me a second time. But, as soon as the shoe was finished, a bunch of people showed up. After the shoe. A bunch of people showed up after the shoe. I found out that all of these bunch of people that showed up, they're the rabbi's personal students. That he's been teaching for 15 years. He's been teaching these guys. Not a single one of them were a keeper, by the way. But these group of people that came after my shiur was over, they were the rabbi's personal students. They come to his shulim; they don't go to anybody else's shulim. Chazrus they got cheat on him and do tshuva, <laughs> So <laughs> the, uh, the these people, they all came after the shiur. After the shiur, they came. Now, why do I mention this to you? Because. Some of the people that came to the shul start to do tshuva. Start realizing they have to start keeping Shabbat. They have to start stop, stop driving on Shabbat. They have to start eating kosher all the time, not just sometimes. They have to cover their hair. They have to do. They have to do a lot of things. You have to start. Okay, there's there's, there's evidence here. This is real Torah. It's not uh, hocus pocus Torah. So all of a sudden, this rabbi loses his mind, and he starts telling people, oh yeah, the Sharon in. Now he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's he's, he's new. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's know he's new. I I I got uh, I got uh, bigger rabbis that told me that uh, everything he said is wrong. So one of the people from that kina says, "Listen, people are." Up in arms in the Kila, they don't know what to do because they heard Yeshu and they saw that everything you said has sources, but then the rabbi is saying the opposite. And it just by Siet Vishvayah, I understood why. He said, Of course. Why? If you noticed, 15, 20, 25 people showed up after the Shiu. Why? Those are all his students. Like, yeah, he was learning with them for 15 years. I said, Do a single one of those 20 people. A single one of them keeps Shabbat? He goes, not a single one keeps Shabbat. Not a single one keeps Shabbat. I said that's the problem. You see, he has been so-called teaching them for 15 years. And after 15 years, not a single one is keeping Shabbat, meaning they've become friends. They're not really his students. They're friends of his. So now his friends, his friends are technically the Mechale Shabbat that I've been talking about in my shiul. They're the Rishayim. They're the ones that are going to on forever. They're the ones that I'm talking about. He doesn't like it anymore. Because now his friends say, hey, come on, you're not going to back us up? You're not going to back us up? You're, this this other rabbi is saying we're going to go to Geyenom, you're not going to back us up? How could you let him say that? How could you let him say that we're going to go to Nom? Like I made the rules now he doesn't like it because now it hurts his friends. It hurts his friends. there's no friends. There's people with interest. There's people with interest. But here, the Torah teaches us that when someone has the Siyat d'ishmaya, the special merit to teach Torah, And he's going to influence others. It's not because he wanted or didn't want. It's because he simply was chosen to do so. And you can see it. You can see it clearly. There are certain people that they don't have any special skills whatsoever, but they can influence many people. For good or for bad. Some people it's mind-boggling how they, they anyone listens to them. But yet, Hashem chose, chose them to be the deliverers of a certain message, good or bad. But there's this is one guy, Itzhak Shapiro, he was born a Jew, but now he's a heretic, mean, apikos, that gets people to go to Christianity. But this guy, when you listen to him, just if you simply look at his face, you shouldn't, because you're not allowed, according to why, not to look at the face of a But bimid you're not allowed to look at the face of a rasha. Uh, we learned it from uh, from uh, the stemis lishmatim. That's the reason why they didn't know that Yosef a tzaddik was the viceroy of Egypt. They were right in front of him a few times. Why? Because they never saw his face. They never looked at his face, because you're not allowed to look at the face of a They told his paro, so they never looked at his face. So when he said, is my father still alive, my father still alive, they didn't know what he was saying. Eventually they looked up, he said, I'm Yosef, they looked up, they saw his face, and they got shocked, they all died and they came back to life. Because they finally saw his face, they saw that the whole time, this guy's talking to them, he's really his brother. The reason why he asked them, is my father still alive, my father still alive, is because he didn't understand, how is it that they can't tell that I'm their brother, I look exactly like my father. Why didn't they, know? they couldn't tell, because they never looked at his face. So even from this, we get to Baruch Hashem. But anyway, this guy, Yitzchak Shapiro, Hashem Yereshaim Yerkav, if you see how he talks and how his face moves, he literally looks like he has like a demon in him or something. He looks very, very, like he does not look normal. I'm serious. I'm not joking. I and mean, It's not about just making fun of him. Aside from the fact that I get a, I get a, a merit in Shammai for making fun of somebody like this, no, no, behmet. You see how this person talks, there's something wrong with him. There's something wrong with him. The way his face moves, I went to say, I, I, there's somebody that saw one of his videos, I know, he, he knows the Chokhmat panim. There's a, there's a special wisdom of the, of the face. He says, that person, something wrong with him. There's something wrong with the person. Like it's, I don't know, I, don't, I can't pinpoint exactly what it is, but there's something wrong with the person. And a few other people, long story short, a few other people verified it's 100% true. There's something 100% wrong with him. He's like a psychopath, sociopath, and so on and so forth. Aside from being a liar, he's a very, very sick person. Now, if you see his face and you hear his speech, whether in Hebrew or in English, I wonder to myself, how does anybody listen to this moron? He doesn't know how to speak not English, not Hebrew, not anything. He not speak any language. He, everything is broken. Hebrew is broken. English is broken. Everything is broken. But yet, people listen to him. He has thousands of followers on the internet and they donate and and so on. I mean, he has a whole organization. benot Hashem he has also something similar. He calls it yeshiva, but it's a yeshiva for slim, no yeshiva for, for Christianity. The point is, Rabotai, is that you see that some people they have no speaking skills whatsoever. They have no personal skills whatsoever. They have no skills whatsoever. But Hashem still chooses them to deliver a message. For good or for bad. This one obviously for evil. But the point is that this person, it shows what the Gemara says. What does the Gemara say? The Gemara says, Someone that comes to become purified, they give him a handsome shaman. Someone that comes to make things impure, they open for him, they open the door for him. What doesn't he open the door for him? Do whatever you want. Go. You want to make sins? Go. Get out of my face, as him says. There's no interest in talking to you. No interest. Just go. You wanna go recruit people for Christianity and build Genom, be my guest. You only have this world. This is also one of the ways that a person can try to understand why, unfortunately, the biggest Christian missionaries in the world, most popular ones, are Jewish. The most popular Christian missionaries, whether it's this guy, or much bigger than him, like this guy Brown, uh, or uh, some a few others that uh, are out there, that uh, this guy Sid, that has a the show called It's a Miracle, a Mach of a Show, all of these Christian missionaries, they're all Jewish. Because Hashem gave their neshama the ability to influence the public, the ability to do something big. They simply chose bad. Big, but bad. So, The Torah teaches us here, this that teaches us here that it's not just people choosing to do something big, it's that Hashem chooses them. They earn their role and if they're on the good side, obviously in publicizing Torah, they earn their role as moral guides of the nation because they themselves followed what they were saying. One of the most obvious obvious things you can tell from a Torah sage to a heretic, from a Talmud Chacham to a missionary, the easiest way you can tell the difference is that Talmud Chacham, the sage, Follows what he says. He teaches modesty; he's modest. He teaches humility; he's humble. He teaches generosity; he's generous. He follows what he says. You cannot say even an inkling of the similarities on the other side. They may teach about humility, but they only want you to be humble. They may teach generosity, but they only want you to be generous with your money so they can give it to them. They teach a lot of things, but they don't follow. And on them, the Gemara says it was better if somebody that teaches the opposite of what they do, it was better that they were choked to death as a baby by their mother's umbilical cord. That's how much Hashem hates such people. So here we have the introduction to the sixth level of the Mishnah, the sixth chapter of the Mishnah. And we're going to start delving into it just a little bit, just so you understand. Rabbi Meir, Omer. Rabbi Meir. Anytime it says Rabbi Meir, it's referring to our famous Rabbi Meir Balanes. Kol haolsek b'torah lishma zochel dvarim arbe, ve'lo od ella <laughs> shkol haolam kolokeday ulo nikra rea auv. אוהב את המקום, אוהב את הבריאות, מסמך את המקום, מסמך את הבריאות, ומלבשתו ענבה ויראה, ומחשרתו להיות צדיק, חסיד, ישר ונאמן, ומרחתו מן החטא, ומקרבתו לידי זכות, ונענין ממנו עצה ותושיעה, בינה וגבורה שנאמר, לי עצה ותושיעה, אני בינה, לי גבורה. ונוטנת וממשלה וחיקו רזה תורה As you notice very long mishnah translation Rabbi Meir says Whoever engages in Torah study for its own sake, Lishma it's called, which we'll go over a little bit today. What does it mean, Lishma? Whoever engages in Torah study for its own sake merits many things. Furthermore, the creation of the entire world is worthwhile for his, for his sake alone. Meaning somebody learns Torah just for the sake of learning Torah. It was worth it for Hashem to create the world just for him. He is called friend, beloved, meaning that Hashem calls this person, I uh, learned offer to for just because, he calls him a friend of mine. He calls him my beloved. He loves the omnipresent. He loves his creatures. He gladdens the omnipresent. He gladdens his creatures. The Torah clothes him in humility and fear of God. It makes him fit to be righteous, devout, fair, and faithful and moves him away from sin and draws him near to merit. From him, people enjoy counsel and wisdom, understanding and strength, as it is said, mine are counsel and wisdom. I am understanding, mine is strength. The Torah gives him kingship and dominion and analytical judgment. The secrets of the Torah are revealed to him, and he becomes a steadily strengthening fountain And like an unceasing river, he becomes modest, patient, and forgiving of insult to himself. The Torah makes him great and exalts him above all things. This may take us a year, just this Mishnah. But the point, as you see, the Mishnah is very, very deep. But how much merit does one who learns for the sake of Shema for the sake of learning, get. Who is this being said by? Rabbi Meir Balanes. Rabbi Meir Balanes got his name. The Gemara Masechet Brachot says that there was one time some goyim kidnapped his sister-in-law and he went to save her. They put her in a prostitution house. M'shem And uh, he disguised himself, put a costume on. And when he went there, he went to the prostitution house. He looked for her and he said, if she hasn't been touched, not just physically, but mentally, meaning she hasn't accepted this decree, she hasn't welcomed it, she hasn't, she's not wanting to be a prostitute, then I'll free her. Then Hashem, please help me to free her. But if not, if she welcomes it and she wants it and she's part of it already, let us stay here. So when he saw her, she didn't know it was him. And he pretended like he was a client. And she said, I'm sorry, sir. I uh, cannot uh, accept any customers now. It's my uh, time of the month. And he tried convincing her with more money, and she just kept telling him, "No, no, I can't do it. It's my time of the month. It's my time of the month." He said, "What a brilliant, what a brilliant, but Israel." She probably tells the same thing to all of our customers. So then he went to the Rosh, the, the, the head uh, guy over there, head guard. He told him, "Listen, I want to buy her." He'd tell him, obviously, she's a sister in no, law. He said, "I want to buy her." Said, what are you crazy? My boss will kill me. So he takes out a bunch of gold. He says, yeah, I'll give you this gold. So the guard wasn't exactly the biggest fool. He says, listen, what good is your gold if I'm going to be killed anyway? He says, listen, you're not going to be killed. Trust me, just, you're not going to be killed. He goes, what should I trust you for? He says, oh, you see that thing you call a dog over there that's guarding your gates? It's like a lion, this thing. He goes, go ahead, free him. Sick him on me. He goes, what's sick him on you? If I sick him on you in two seconds, you're just a bunch of bones. He's going to eat you to nothing. He goes, okay, so I'm, I'll take the risk. So the guard for, tried to get a good laugh, went, freed this monster of a dog at Rabi Meir, Rabi Says de Rabbi Meir, Aneni, the God of Rabbi Meir, answer me. And all of a sudden, this little dog becomes like his best friend, a little puppy. So the guy, the guard, the guy, knew this is a miracle because this this dog even kills his own owner. So he says, Oh, if he could do this with a dog, oh, he must be something special. He goes, okay, listen. I told him, listen, if they're gonna try to hurt you, just say the same thing I said. The God of Rabbi Meir, answer me, and you'll have special protection. He's okay. He took the money. He gave the girl, and he saved the girl. So from there, Rabbi Meir Balanes got his name. Rabbi Meir, the owner of miracles. Rabbi Meir Balanes means Nes means miracle, Baal means like an owner, owner of miracles. So Rabbi Meir Balanes says anyone who engages in Torah for its own sake merits many things. So first and foremost, what does it mean engaging in Torah for its own sake? Now there's a few a few opinions of the details, the deeper details of what does it mean for its own sake. But the Gemara Masechet Nedarim, page 62a, says, do things for the sake of the deed, study them for their own sake. Meaning you should simply do things simply because Hashem said so. Not because you're going to get any reward, not because uh, you're going to get a lot of money. Do it because Hashem said so. There's even a Mishnah in Perkei Avot, Antigonos Issacho, one of the originals, said you should do it, you should serve your master, you should serve the, the Hashem, not like someone who is uh, expecting a reward. And a couple of his own students misunderstood it, thinking that he's saying don't you know serve Hashem as if there's no reward, maybe there isn't an award. maybe there isn't an reward, maybe there's no Allah Abba. So they decided to leave Judaism and they started the reform and conservative of those days. The Batchesees and Sadducees started in those days because they misunderstood their teacher. But in reality, there were just people like today that were looking for excuses because they could have simply asked their teacher, Kvodarav, what do you mean serve the master as if there's no reward? Is there no reward? They could have simply asked them what they do instead. They immediately started their own thing against what he's teaching. Why? Because they were just looking for an out. Like some people today, they ask you a question, not because they want an answer, but because they want an out. They want an excuse to justify their life. So they're like a lawyer. A lawyer, sometimes if you're in a case, the lawyer on the opposite side asks you questions. He's not asking you questions because he really cares about your opinion so much. He's asking you a question because he's cooking you and cooking you and cooking you in order to use your own words against you later on for the real question that he's trying to prepare you for. You did this, yes. You did this, yes. You did this, yes. You did yes, you did So if you did yes, 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 that means that of course it means yes for the big thing that I really wanted you to say yes for. And that's how the lawyers work. It's a manipulating system. People do this to themselves all the time. They manipulate themselves. They can't manipulate Hashem, though. But the Shlach Kadosh says, what is learning Torah lishma? learning Torah for its own sake? Learning Torah for its own sake literally means learn Torah in order to practice it. learn more and more Torah in order to bring yourself closer to practicing it in order to bring yourself to become part of it by developing your character in order to develop your knowledge of Hashem's Torah. Because the Rambam says in Chotamut Torah chapter 3 3 3-5 he says that study leads to practice. First, the man is judged on his studying, and only afterwards on the rest of his practice. Why is it only afterwards on his practice? If he didn't study, how did he know what to do? And if he did it, but not because he studied, don't think that you're going to get the same reward. For example, the Rambam writes that the nations, not amisleh the rest of the nations, all they have is Sheva Bnei Noach. They have the seven laws of Noach and all of the common sense rules. Like honoring their parents and having good character traits and so on. But they have seven laws. And he says if someone that's a non-Jew keeps the seven Noahide laws, then they have a share of the world to come. And they're considered the righteous among the nations. umot And they're also considered the wise among the nations. The wise among the nations. But if a non-Jew keeps all of those mitzvot, he keeps the seven Noahide laws, but not because it says it in the Torah, simply because he agrees with them. He agrees that you shouldn't murder. He agrees that you shouldn't steal. He agrees that you shouldn't be immoral. He agrees that you should have a court. Not because he agrees with Hashem. He just agrees that you shouldn't do it. Then the Rambam, not only does he not get a share of the world to come, but he's actually considered one of the fools among the nations. Because he does all of the work without getting paid. So a person that, the Rambam writes, a person that studies Torah is not only going to know what to do, but also is going to be judged the right way, simply because first he's judged on his study, and then after he's judged on his practice. If he learned and did the opposite, then obviously it's mizid. If he didn't learn, then it's also mizid. Point being is that a person can't just escape thinking that he's not going to study and therefore he doesn't have to do. A lot of people think, oh no, no, what if I just don't do it? What if I just don't learn it? Then I don't have to do. It. No such thing. al-mud <inaudible> A person that intentionally does not study, all of their sins turn into purposeful sins. They're no longer accidental sins, even though they didn't know them, they didn't know them because they intentionally did not learn. Now, Learning Torah L'shema means that a person literally wants to do what Hashem put them in the world to do. But he's not doing it because he's going to get Olam He's not doing it because he's going to get a lot of money. He's doing it simply because he knows it pleases Hashem. It gives pleasure to Hashem. Whatever pleasure to Hashem means, that's what it does. We learned some time ago that the very difficult question that people ask, why would Hashem punish you for things you didn't do? Why would He punish you for things you didn't do? If you knew you're not going to do them, why didn't just destroy you? Why didn't just not create you in the world? Because the one thing that Hashem does give us is He gives us free choice. Free choice to do or not do. If if He decides for you to do or not to do, then there's no point of you. There's no point of us. There's no point of anything. So He gives us a choice. So why did He create us then? He created us in order to give us good. But He also knew that if He gives good to everybody, regardless of what they do, then there's no point. Then there's no free choice. If you do what He says... Or you don't do what he says. He still gives you a reward either way. There's no point. And everyone will just do whatever they want. No one will listen to him. On the other hand, if he gives good to the ones that do good and bad to the ones that do bad, then everyone knows this is this, there's an order to the system. So why does he punish a person? Because when a person does something that's against Hashem, in essence what they're doing is that they're forcing Hashem to not give them what he's wanted to give them their whole life, which is good. He only created you to give you good. By doing bad, in essence, you're forcing him to not give you the good. So he can't give you the good. And for that, we get punished. It's not that he wants to punish us. It's that we force his hand to punish us. He can't not punish us, because then it ruins the whole system, and then his own signature of Ahmed becomes Sheikh, So he can't not punish us. But the same token, he doesn't want to punish us. So he gives us a choice. You decide. Reward or punishment, you decide. Now, a person that learns lishma gets an extraordinary amount of reward, it says here. Merits many things. It doesn't say it merits a lot of money. It doesn't say it merits a lot of uh, kavod. We're going to finish off with one story. We're going to continue with Hashem next week with the rest of it because it's a very very long Mishnah. But I give you an understanding of how many things can mean many things. It literally says, "Zochel edvarim He merits many things. Someone that engages in Torah for its own sake merits many things. What is many things? We see the Rabbi Yudanasi, Rabbi Yudanasi, Rabbi, Nasi, Rabbi Yad Kaddosh, merited not only having Torah. He was extraordinarily wealthy. He had hundreds and hundreds of horses. He had palaces. He had everything and anything material you can possibly imagine. But still at the end of his days, he looked at the heavens and he said, Hashem, you know that I didn't enjoy all of this material wealth that you gave me, even the size of a fingernail. All of it I used for you. All of it. But yet, he still merited to have the ability to give a lot of tzedakah, a lot of chesed, a lot of everything." But then you see some other people throughout history that didn't have all the wealth that Rebbe had, but yet they still have extraordinarily, they've been extraordinarily rewarded according to this Mishnah. So what are some of these other rewards? The Chazoni Shalabah Shalom is a famous story that when he was 13 years old, his father asked him, Son, are you ready for the drasha? Are you ready for? He was already known to be a talmid chacham, already very young. Son, you ready for your drasha bar mitzvah? At bar mitzvah, thirteen years old. All the big chachamim would come, and they want to hear what, what this young boy has to say. Not like today, they come for the food. Oh, you're only having steak, chicken. Ah, I had this last night. Different bar mitzvah. Who was the, uh, the catering? Ah, you should have picked the other guy. Not like today. No, they actually come for the drasha. And drasha in those days was about the Torah. Not like today, you talk about Spider-Man. You go to drasha, you think you went to a comic book. Went to drasha, they actually gave you divret Torah, the kid. So, the father says, son, before he became chazonish, are you ready for are you ready for drasha? He goes, Abba, I know the whole thing by heart. Okay. The next day, the chazonish little chazonish comes up. Because today, am my bar mitzvah? I swear to you, Hashem, in your holy name, that for the rest of my life I will learn Torah lishma. All the Torah for the rest of my life. All I will do for the rest of my life is learn your Torah just for you. That's it. That was his Dasha. And for the rest of his life, that's what he did. Now this is a little bit of a problem in today's world. Why is it a problem in today's world? It came time for a Shiduch a few years later. Shiduch comes. You have to tell him the Shiduch. Hi, how are you? How are you? Your family, your family. Hi, your family, your family. Okay, listen, I'm not going to work. What are you doing? I'm learning Torah lishma. I'm not going to sell any books. I'm not going to become a rabbi. I'm not going to become a Dayan. I'm not going to become... Not, I'm only going to do... I'm going to learn all the rest of my life for no money. That's what I'm going to do. Go find a girl in the world today that's willing to... Oh, yeah, sure. No problem. In Israel, maybe a few. In America, I'm like, yeah, okay, your father's a millionaire then. No, my father has nothing. Your mom's a millionaire then. No, my mom has nothing. Uh, your cousin, your aunt, your uncle, maybe your, uh Uh, connected, maybe a Mashiach, maybe you have some diamonds under the carpet or something. What do you mean? How are you going to survive? Today, how are you going to survive with no money? I made a vow when I was 13 years old. I'm going to learn Torah Lishma. I'm going to learn Torah just for the sake of heaven. That's it. You need a special woman for that. Not many in the world exist, but some still do. The point is, is that a person needs to know Chazonish, Rav Ovadia, Staip Gaon, Chafetz Chaim, Rav Wasserman, all the giants, waiting they became giants by themselves? Waiting they became giants by themselves? Their wives were giants. The Rabbaniot were giants. You cannot become Moshe Rabbeinu without Zipporah. You cannot become Avram Avinu without Sarah. You cannot. You cannot be. You cannot be. You cannot be. That's why Hashem said to Avram, listen to Sarah. What do you mean, I'm Avram? Listen to Sarah. Listen to Sarah. Look, you cannot be Avram without Sarah. So the Chazonish, young boy, goes to Shiduch. He says, listen, I'm never going to work. I'm never going to sell any books. I'm never going to be a rabbi keila. I'm only learning Torah. That's it. Panasa on you. What do you get for having such a commitment? You get eshet chayil. Okay. So all will get. He says marriage many things. He got many things. Number one. He got eshet chayil. It says, okay. No problem. I'll worry about the money. You, husband... I'll take care of the kids. I'll take care of the job. I'll take care of this. I'll take... You go learn Torah, honey. You learn Torah, I'll take care of everything else. What a partnership. Just make sure. Half of comes to me too. No problem. Good deal. What do you think, Rachel? Rachel, what, what, Rachel the, the wife of Rabbi Akiva. After he came back with 24,000 students, the students saw Rachel. They, they didn't know Rachel was his wife. Said, lady, lady, get out of the way. The G'dol Adon is coming. Rabbi Akiva yelled at them, Zero! all of the Torah, that all of us have, 24,000 students, the lowest of them can revive the dead. All of the Torah that we have is hers. Everything. Everything is hers. It's not half-half. The whole thing is hers. Everything is hers. She had to sell her hair in order to eat. Her father was the richest man in the land. She could have easily divorced Rabbi Akiva. Go back to Abba, Abba. I made a mistake. Give me back my money. Give me back some money. Give me back some hair. Give me back some anything. No problem. No. No. Why? I want Olam Abba. Olam Abba. Olam Abba means Mesiut Nefesh in this world, Rabbi It's not an easy life. So the Mishnah here says someone who learns Torah for its own sake merits many things. But what happens when the wife, when the Esha gets in trouble? What is this little Tamit Hacham? What could he do? So the story goes, one day the wife of the Chazonish, Allah Shalom, she had a little business. And this Arab tried to cheat her. He gave her the goods, and he took the money, and he gave her. The note that she signed that she took the goods, but he never gave her a receipt that she paid him. Never gave him the receipt. So he came back later. He said, God, give me the money. She says, I paid you, Mustafa. I paid you. She goes, no, you have a receipt. You have a receipt to show me that you paid me. She was naive. She didn't know. She's doing business with the guy. She's trying to do business. The guy's cheating us. You're not expecting some uh, Mustafa t- 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 her. So, uh, no, I don't have a receipt. Because I'll take you to court. I'll take you to court. He takes it to court. And the court says, if you don't have a receipt, you can't produce a receipt. Close down the shop. She goes back, she goes. She doesn't want to disturb Chazoni, she's learning Torah the whole time. She doesn't even, she doesn't even know what happened. But I guess the push comes to Shav, she comes to, come. She, who's she going to go to? She goes to her husband, says, honey, I'm sorry to disturb you, first time in 50 years, I never disturb you and learn Torah, 50 years, I'm never disturbing you for a second, I'm sorry to disturb you one time, one time, sorry, I have a little bit of a dilemma. The house is about to go foreclosure. The business going to go foreclosure. Everything go foreclosure because this Arab, this Arab guy, he cheated me. What did he do? Oh, he uh, said he uh, I didn't pay him, and I did pay him. He told him the whole story. He's okay. Wh- what's his name? What's his name? She says, uh, she tells him his name, Mustafa, Mustafa, Mustafa Ahmed. Okay, Mustafa, Mustafa Ahmed. Come, one second. He goes, I'll be right back. Tells his wife, I'll be right back. He goes inside the room. Comes back 10 minutes later, reads some teyling. Comes back 10 minutes later, he goes, don't worry, everything's gonna be fine. She turns around, she goes back, she's supposed to go back to the court. As she gets to the court, somebody meets her at the front, she goes, ma'am, I'm sorry to tell you, but Mustafa Mustafa Ahmed died. No case, case dismissed. Why? Khazonish decided he's gonna die. Someone who learns Torah Lishma for its own sake merits many things. What's many things? Many things has no limitations. If you want to say it's money, you're limiting it. You want to say it's a good woman, you're limiting it. You want to say it's kids, you're limiting it. Many things the Mishnah says, Rabbi Mehbalet says, many things. Endless. Hashem literally changes nature for you. But what do you think? It's easy to be Chazonish? You think it's easy to be Rav Vadia when everybody laughs at you because you're, they, they told the Rabbanit of Vadia. Rabbanit Margarit, they told her when they first got married, the whole house was one room. Not one bedroom, one room. The whole house was one room. The whole house. Oh, vadia! Him and his wife and six kids. One room. Not one bedroom. One room. One room. No kitchen. Bath. No, no. Just one room. The whole thing. The sisters of the Rabbani told her, "What does he do all day?" He says, "He writes. He writes, and he learns." He goes, "What are you going to do? Eat the books?" What are you going to do? Eat the books? They made fun of her. Who left last? Who's in Gane right now? Who's in Olama Ba next to Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabbi Akiva? Who? So yeah, you sacrifice 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years here. Yes, you sacrifice. But for what? Do you have the merit? Do you have the strength? Do you have the munah? These are big decisions. But the point is that this Mishnah is starting to teach us something a little different. While the other five chapters that we learned up to now dealt with the moral and ethical characters development. Different Musar to develop our characters. This specific chapter, this entire chapter it's going to teach us about the beauty of Torah itself. Different intricate details, different intricate teachings. They're going to teach us the beauty of living Torah already now. Not just Olam of but now, here, now. What do you get out of it? Anyone that compares the Torah of Am Yisrael to any of the teachings of the Go'in, throughout all of history, sees that for you to learn Torah is by itself the biggest gift you can possibly get. What are you going to learn from? The native Indian, Indians, they used to put the uh, scalps of their uh, enemy on their belt. Or the guys from, uh, as uh, Avigdol Mila used to say, the the people from uh, Congo, they used to uh, eat each other after they killed each other, used to eat each other. Or the Americans... They made each other slaves, or the Nazis. They gave more honor to the dog than they gave to human beings. What are you going? Which which nation you're going to? Which nation you're going to honor? Which teachings? The Greeks that promoted homosexuality and pedophilia, and said that all of their gods, they had a new god for every little desire that they had. Their gods, if you look at the teachings of their gods, the most disgusting creatures on earth. Every disgusting desire had a god for it. Or maybe you're going to go to India and drink the urine of the cow because it carries a baby for nine months. Or maybe you're going to worship the rats and go to their temple and drink milk with them from the same bowl. Which nation are you going to go to? Maybe you're going to go to China and beat the dog to death before you eat him alive. Or better yet, you're going to go to Japan and slice open the, the the food of the day, the monkey brain while it's still alive. Which nation's teachings you're going to go to today or yesterday? Which teachings you're going to go to? Where are you going to go? Learning Torah of Am Yisrael is a gift by itself. It's a Gan Eden by itself. And this chapter is going to teach us many of the other reasons of why it's Gan Eden. Any questions? I think the scalps and the uh, rest of the stuff shocked you guys, and the monkey brains.
1: that
0: they develop through that emotion? I don't know if I'm making it like that. Living off of your emotions is not a sickness. It's simply lack of control. Um, it's, a, it's a person that simply does not have control of themselves uh, and is a... Uh, just a, acts based on random feelings. Like a child. You know, you're a child... Will uh, cry even if it's, uh, it tells you pick me up. You pick him up, and then he decides, no, oh, no, no, take me down. He starts crying again. Child, why? Why does a child cry? I mean, as much as you want to, you know, make sure the kid never never cries. Every kid cries. If he doesn't cry, it's not normal. If he doesn't cry, he's very sick, or she's very sick. You, the kid has to cry. But the point is, is that until the child understands how to control their emotions, they have to cry. We hope that by the time they're adults, they know how to control them. Unfortunately, they only know how to control them under certain cases, under certain scenarios. So They can control them in front of people they're, uh, you know, they uh, they're you know intimidated by, or they're trying to show a good face. You know, so they're gonna not they're not gonna cry instead of their in front of their colleagues. They're not gonna cry in front of their enemy they're not going to cry in front of uh, their teacher but they're going to cry in front of their friends they're going to cry in front of their boyfriend in front of their girlfriend in front of their husband in front of their parents not because necessarily it the what happened warranted crying is that they allow themselves the expression of their emotions differently next to different people but certain people don't just do that they simply start crying or start exerting uncont- you know, lack of control in their emotions anytime he they hear something they don't like. So you'll see sometimes a person lose their mind at, let's say, the bank teller. Why? Because the bank teller says, listen, you don't have any money in the, ca- in the account, I can't lend you any money. And a guy loses his temper on the bank teller, even though it's not the bank teller's fault. Why? Because he doesn't know how to control himself. So... Unfortunately, this is very, very common today, and it's uh, in certain uh, places it's actually even uh, admired that people that don't know how to control themselves. Uh, but uh, it's not a sickness, it's just simply a person that's uh, getting closer and closer to being a monkey, closer and closer to being an animal. And that's what we learn musal in order to control our emotions. But the only way you could truly control your emotions is by learning what you should feel and why. the Eastern medicine type of uh, thought like for example Chinese and, uh, and, and uh, different type of meditation uh, tries to teach you to suppress your feelings. Don't exert anger because you should contain it. you know don't be ang- you know don't don't show that you're angry. contain it inside. You know, like the, uh, the the book, The Art of War, um, teaches a lot of this type of teachings that uh, if you uh, if you're not going to win a battle, then run away, and so on. I read this many years ago. But the truth be told is that this Eastern type of philosophy has many, many flaws in it. And the reason why is because it teaches you how to suppress feelings deep inside and not how to control them. By controlling them, we don't say "don't exert your anger." By controlling, we mean know when to have them and when not. Know when it's justifiable to have them and when not. Know when it's justifiable to have anger and know when it's not justifiable to have anger. Now, since they think that you know they're, uh, they they believe in an idol, and you are your own god, in essence, you have to. There's nowhere way to go. But since we believe as Jews, we believe that everything comes from God, the creator of all creations, we know that there's really no real reason to be angry, because if you're angry, you're angry at God. You're not angry at the person, because the person that's causing you to be angry is a messenger of God. Point being is that Torah teaches us not how to simply control our exertion of anger. The Torah teaches us how to not have anger at all. Because there's no reason to. Because if you really have emunah and Hashem, you know that whatever is happening in your life is from Him. So why are you angry? Same thing with sadness. Same thing with all other feelings. So a person that doesn't have control of their of their emotions, in today's world, is the norm. He's, he's normal. But he's normal not being good. Next. Well, no uh, uh,
1: yeah. I underneath.
0: Underneath. there's a uh, two opinions. Some say that uh, um, one foot is two ammo, some say one foot is one and a half. There's two opinions. It could be either um, two to four, so it depends. this translate the uh, they don't know the exact measurement. But if you look at the, uh, for example, if you have, uh, um, you go online or you go on the back of uh, Talmud or definitions of the Talmud, you'll see that there's different opinions of what the uh, each Amma really is. One and a half feet or two feet. Some say it's one and a half, some say it's two. that's then by you
1: know, someone especially if, I mean, if,
0: especially after you pray you know you have to take a step back three if you steps turn, yeah yeah, step back. If yeah you should try it all the, yeah. the thing is though is they the, it's a um you know, uh, exactly it, so, it depends in today's in today's world we uh for prayer purposes a person should have a steady place where they pray um and uh, the way it, uh, it's relevant, Allahakli, is that you should, uh, some say, that it's, uh, as long as you were within the same vicinity, as long as you pray within the same synagogue, that's already as if you're in the same place. Some say that you should pray within four amot, of where you stood last time. So if you stood, let's say, for example, uh, right next to the bima last time, you should stand within either there, exactly the same place, or within you have four amot to stand uh, around, because four amot is the the minimum amount of halachic space that a person takes up. In general, the uh, the, the opinion that's uh, uh, accepted is that as long as you pray in the same you know in the same place, you're fine. Even if you pray in other places, it's fine. But it's it's you you should have a place that you pray on a regular basis, but if you don't, you're still, you're still fulfilling your uh, Allahi yeah, requirement. What,
1: what I think Rabbi um, uh, 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 Yaakov mean was also referring to is like, when in comparison to somebody else's, like you're not supposed to be in that certain space.
0: Oh, and, and yes. in that certain space? Yeah, I mean, again, it depends. It depends. It depends on the, on the, uh, it depends on the shul. Uh, it depends if there's more space. Of course, if the if it's a massive shul that has a lot of space, then you should uh, give him space. Even without that, uh, Rabbi Yaakov is what he's saying. You should give him as much space as possible. So if you have your space; he has their space. But it's not possible all the time. We're not at the time yeah, of bet midrash. Yeah, no. I mean, as far, mean as, as far as as far as is concerned, uh, the 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 uh, you know you're fine regardless. Uh, generally. You're supposed to have at least enough space between you and the other person to take those three steps forward, three steps back. You don't want to step on top of each other, and I think most shuls will give you that much space. I don't think there's really many that many attendants in any shul that you don't have even enough space for three steps. Uh, and if you do, there's plenty of shuls that will have that space. Uh, but aside from that, you're fine. You so that's
1: pretty much suggestion because I think he mentioned that if there's not... Yeah, you should not take this step back. So
0: that's not can, yeah, but in, in there's really uh, unfortunately there's, there most batikneset don't have that many people to the extent uh, that you don't have any place to, to move. With the exception of Yom, Yom Kippur, yeah, okay, yeah with the exception of Yom Kippur, uh, there, there's plenty of place throughout the whole year. And even in Yom Kippur, today's batikneset are so massive. Uh, Hashem that uh, they give you enough space within your uh, uh, within your own seat that you can still take those three spaces. You're still fine. You're still fine.
1: Also, um,
0: and I believe that the, the uh, for, for those purposes they hold on the uh, amot being the smaller measure, the one and a half feet, and not the two feet.
1: Also, oh, check out that. The,
0: If they do it because Hashem it. said it. Yeah,
1: because I said yeah. The, because I said, But how would?
0: How would they know? know? Yes, have that's that's to learn Torah. The.
1: Oh, where exactly, because given that certain people, I know, uh, yeah, like the Christians have the, the book, even the, the funny thing, even it's in their book, it's there. They. I, 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 I tell you they don't the learn to Torah. They learn they even though it's they in their mean, book. They don't learn. Actually, it. They don't. They don't know it's there. Told so many of them is
0: there, and they read the passage and still don't get it. That's why I'm asking, so how exactly would they, would they get to know these thoughts? The Torah promises that everyone that looks for the truth will find it. Meaning that Hashem promises, if you look for me, you'll find me, if you look for me with all of your heart and all of your soul. So every person, at some point during their life, has to ask themselves, "What's the point of life?" Has to ask these difficult questions, um, because if they don't, then obviously they cannot be righteous. But a person that looks for looks to be righteous is going to look for how, how, you know what determines who's righteous and who's not. Now, if they were born into a Christian family a Catholic family, a Buddhist family, or a Muslim family, and they really yearn for the truth, eventually they're going to arrive at the Torah. Uh, whether it's through their religion or as an exit out of their religion. Point is they'll arrive at the Torah. And once they arrive at the Torah, they're gonna arrive at the truth. Hashem will lighten their you know, will will open their eyes to see the truth. If they choose to um, if they choose to convert they're praiseworthy, if not, but they still choose to uh, fulfill the will of Hashem according to the Noahide law. They're still fine. In chapter 4, verse 29, Hashem talks about the end of days. He says, From there you will seek Hashem your God and you will find Him. If you search for Him with all of your heart and all of your soul, when you are in distress and all these things are befallen you at the end of days, you will return on to Hashem your God and hearken to His voice. Meaning, Hashem makes a promise that if you look for Him, you'll find Him. It's not like a uh, uh, something that only the Jews are going to find, only the uh, the few are going to find. Anyone that looks for Him will find Him. I know that there's a, a few examples of people that uh, weren't even looking, for what they, didn't even find what they they thought they were looking for. They were are looking for Hashem. One time, for example, one woman sent me, me a message on Facebook trying to be a missionary. She tried to recruit me to, to Christianity. Uh, but unlike most missionaries that have evil intentions and are literally just liars, um, this woman literally thought she was doing good and she was looking for good. So when I responded to her that her religion... Of Christianity is one hundred percent idolatry, and I have proofs of it. And I sent her those proofs. She actually looked into it, and Bo Hashem. Today is almost a year and a half later. Uh, she's in her last stages of converting to Judaism. So she thought she was, uh, you know, she was looking to Hashem and she was looking to publicize Hashem what thought was Hashem to Christianity. In reality, she found the real Hashem uh, through Judaism. But she was looking for Hashem, nonetheless, the whole time. So, the point is that anyone that has the Torah has the responsibility of sharing the Torah. And if you're sharing it with Jews, you share everything. If you're sharing it with uh, non-Jews, then you're sharing the things that are only relevant to them, which are the written Torah, which in essence is the Tanakh, most importantly, the five books of Moses. A lot of people focus a lot of their time on, on the prophets and things like that. But I generally don't recommend it, number one, because a lot of the teachings that the Goim have is about them and they distort those chapters uh, in Isaiah and Daniel a lot more than, uh, than uh, they even have the ability to do so with the five books of Moses. That's why they don't even teach the five books of Moses in churches. Uh, they only teach Isaiah and Daniel over and over and over again a million times over because it's easier to manipulate things that are vague. Uh, There's very vague language that the prophets use because their prophecy wasn't as clear as Moshe Rabenu. So generally I would recommend for a person to go to the source, to the foundation of everything, which is the five books of Moses. You teach them the five books of Moses, you teach them the, the, the Midrashim, and you teach them Musal. Once a person sees, you know, goes over through all of those things, they have, uh, you know, a set plan for the rest of their life how to improve themselves on a regular basis that's really what a goy needs to learn needs to learn musar needs to learn the uh, the five books of moses and uh, that's it you know uh, but unfortunately many goyim they want to have the cake and eat it too where they want to learn the entire torah and not just what they're supposed to not just the uh, five books of moses they want to learn some of the mystical things. They want to learn some of the mitzvot of Am Yisrael. And they want to start keeping the mitzvot of Am Yisrael. And they want to start keeping Shabbat. And they want to start keeping kosher. And they want to start keeping some of the holidays. All the holidays. And they want to start living like Jews, but as goyim at the same time. And this is a very serious problem. Because the Rambam Pusek La'alacha that a Jew has to keep these mitzvot, but a Goy does not. And if a guy keeps these mitzvot, in essence, he is inventing a new religion. And for that, he gets a heavenly death penalty, which means eternal genom. He does not get rewarded for them. The opposite, he gets punished for it. So all of these goyin that are keeping Shabbat and are keeping, uh, you know, if they even know how to keep Shabbat, uh, they're keeping all these mitzvot, thinking that they're doing the right thing. In reality, they should know they're all going to get punished for it. They're not going to reward for it. And that's, that's the problem with a lot of these people is that they go to the teacher that's going to tell them what they want to hear. So there's a couple of jokers that call themselves rabbis. One of them is, a, uh, I think both of them are uh, located in Israel. One of them is, this uh, both of them are located in Israel that uh, came out with um, this book where they're pretty much changing the Torah, changing the Torah, and uh, one of them is David Katz and the other guy is someone Kaufman or something like that. And uh, and they change the Torah to say that the Noahide, the Noahide Ger is allowed to keep mitzvot, allowed to keep Shabbat, allowed to keep everything. Why do they, what, what's, what's in it for the rabbi? Why would the rabbi take such a risk to change the Torah when the Rambam never said it, Rabbi Yashiv never said it, Ovadia never said it, Kanievsky never said it, Chafetz Chaim never, 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 never said it, never said it, No one ever said it. What is this, these two jokesters, why would they take such a risk and say something that's the opposite of all the Chachamim before them and call the Chidush? Why? Because a lot of money in Noah Heights. There's a lot of money in fooling Noah Heights into making them think that they could live as Jews, but still... Stay the same at the same time. So if you tell the Noahide, you keep Shabbat, he's going to donate billions to you—not millions, billions—because there's countless. There's a lot more Noahides than there are Jews. So that's what's happening. A lot of these people are teaching Goim to keep mitzvot, to donate to different Chabad centers, to donate to uh, different organizations, Noahide organizations, under the pretense that they could literally keep mitzvot even though they're not allowed to. So, yes, there are certain things that they have to do. They have to learn Torah as far as they have to learn how to behave and they have to learn what they what to do. But when you start giving them certain things that are similar or the same as Jews, you're in essence creating a new religion. You're in essence creating a new religion. And a person needs to simply understand, if it wasn't done before you, If the Chachamim before you didn't do it, there's a reason for it. Like, for example, a lot of people come to me and they say, listen, why don't uh, somebody write a Sidur, a prayer book for the Noahites? Why don't they write? Because the Jews have a prayer book. They have a Sidur. Why don't you make a Sidur for the Noahites? Two reasons. Number one, number one, the Noahites are not obligated to pray. They could They should, but they're not obligated to do it. Number two, which is even more important, is that the Chachamim, though much greater than we could ever be, from previous generations, from the days of the Gemara, from the days of the Mishnah, from the days of the Rambam, from the reigns of the Ramban, from the Shuchan Aruch, from the recent generations, they never did it. Who am I to do it? If they didn't do it, what, what makes you think that it's okay to do it now? What? There's more Noahides today than before? No, there's always been a lot of them. So, people that are trying to, like, write new prayer books for Noahides, new this, new that for Noahides, they're simply making a mistake. And that's why the many of the Chachamim went against Chabad, by the way. The, the Lubavitcher Rebbe that tried to promote uh, teaching the Noahides in masses, they went against them for doing it. Because they said, listen, you should spend all the extra resources for, for Jews. Not to ignore the Noahides, but the point being is that it's uh, you have twenty million, uh, you know, of Am Yisrael that don't keep Shabbat. You're gonna go spend money and resources to go write books from Noahides. Oh, that means you're not doing it Lashma, You're not doing it for Hashem. You're doing it for, uh, you know, for business. You know, so yes, everybody means well, but the point being Rabotay Karim, is that a person needs to know your priority is Am Yisrael. Am Yisrael is Jews. Or or con- or people that are trying to convert to Judaism, but not people that have decided to stay Noahides. Not people that decided to stay; they're going to stay Noahides regardless. They're staying Noahides by choice. If they're staying Noahides but they want to convert, it's a different story. But the point being is that a Noahide has a lot of work cut out for him. Anyway, it's not easy to be a Noahide. It's not just because they have less mitzvot; does not mean it's easy. They have to learn Musar, they have to develop their character traits, they have to uh, uh, be generous, and so on and so forth. They have to do a lot of things. But to, uh, no, not feeling for Noahides. That's just for Am Uh But the point being is that a Noahide is a, uh, mostly his responsibility is behavior. Behavior. As far as things like tefillin, prayer, Uh, uh, Holidays, things of that nature That's not part of his uh, That's not part of his mission Not part of our mission And that's what anyone that wants to do it Anyone that wants to do it Needs to convert
1: I know they're not there yet, but with the traits, the, the character traits and the behavior and all that, you feel like they could get to a certain level, but at least if they leave, that, you know, yeah. not. so with that said, is it, you know...
0: Yeah, you I mean, there know, are definitely there are definitely good people that are not Jews. There's no question about it. There's plenty of good people that are not Jewish. Uh, to be honest with you, I one of the best people that I know in my life whole life uh, is not Jewish and uh, he is uh, unbelievably good he's very very kind very warm very uh, just a, just a, a superhuman being uh, and he's not Jewish and he believes in a form of Christianity not quite idolatry but not quite uh, kosher either uh, nonetheless he has fantastic character traits. But, uh, yes, also, like everybody else, has to work as other things that are, that are flawed. Uh, point being is that uh, if he were to learn Torah, I think he could become a major tzaddik. So, you could be a decent human being uh, if Hashem gave you certain character traits and you're able to control yourself naturally. You know, Some people are naturally calm. Some people are naturally more generous. Some people are naturally more angry. Some people are naturally more mellow. Some people have natural instincts to do certain things, or some people just go through life experiences that teach them otherwise. Point being is that you could be a decent human being without necessarily being Jewish, but to be righteous, to be a tzaddik, you could only be with Torah. Why? Because you need to know how to define righteous. So a person can be generous... Uh, you know, on one hand, he can be very, very generous, but he could also be a very angry person at the same time. So yes, he has one good character trait, so he can be very, very generous. But same token, if his wife looks at him the wrong way, he wants to tear her head off. Excuse me. A person could be, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, very good at one thing and very bad at something else. So only the Torah is going to give you the full teachings from you know, Aleph Ataf, from A to Z, of how to achieve completion, how to achieve complete righteousness. Uh, so yes, you can have natural instincts or natural abilities, or even things that you've developed yourself that make you a decent human being. No questions asked. I know plenty of people that are not Jewish that are decent human beings. Uh, but to achieve completion, only through the Torah. Only through the Torah. There was actually a person at the time of the Rambam, An Arab sheikh came into town and uh, the Rambam wrote that it's impossible to achieve true humility without Torah. Because humility is the highest of all midot. It's the the foundation of all good character traits. If you have humility, you have everything else. True humility, not humility in front of people. Humility even when it's not in front of people. So there was one uh, Arab sheikh that came to town. And everyone said, this guy is the most humble of all. Even though he's a millionaire, when he hosts guests, he serves them himself. He takes off their shoes. He acts like a little avinu. He washes their feet. So, the Rambam was very curious and he uh, followed this person for a while. And he saw, wow, this, he really showed uh, unique character traits that a humble person has. And the Rambam was uh, dumbfounded to say, how could it be that he achieved true humility without Torah? He's, a, he's an Arab. So before the guy left, left town, he came by the Rambam. And he said, yeah, I wanted to say uh, goodbye to you. he like, oh, yeah, it was very nice to meet you. Uh, so long. So then the Arab turned around and said, by the way, aren't I the most humble of all people? And the Rambam understood is like, ah, okay, now I understand the truth. The truth is, yes, he's humble, but it's all a show. It's all fake. So some people, many people, are fake humble. There's a lot of people that are fake humble. Fake opening a door for you, as if they care. Fake, there's fake, a lot of fake things. Fake, there's plenty of. True humility is only achieved through the Torah. So again, there's certain people that have natural good instincts and good character traits to experience through certain teachings they have and so on. But the ultimate completion can only be achieved through Torah. And a person needs to know that if they have the opportunity to convert, they should do it immediately. Uh, simple reason is you have an opportunity to be the firstborn of Hashem. Why would you, you know, why would you delay it if you have the ability? Some people say, yeah, but it's hard. Oh, if you think it's hard, then don't do it. If that's the first thing that comes to your mind about conversion, that it's hard, then don't do it. You're not ready. Oh, but they're not accepting. Oh, exactly. They're not accepting, so don't do it. Like, if you already have bad things to say about Am Israel, don't do it. Not that Am Israel is perfect, but the reality is if that's what you could already see from the outside already... Don't do it. You'll, you'll just become a bitter convert, and there's plenty of those. There's plenty of those. Next. Rabbi Mittyahu says that Torah Lishma, le le to learn Torah for the sake of Torah, means to learn Torah in order to get Yerachamayim. So if a person really learns Torah for the sake of learning Torah in order to serve Hashem, then he will attain Yerachamayim. But if he hasn't attained Yerachamayim, that simply means that his Torah is not learning for Yerachamayim, he's learning to show off that he knows stuff. He's learning for the sake of telling people he knows stuff. He's learning for the sake of something else. It's not for Hashem. It's not pure. So the more pure his Torah is, the more he'll have Yirat Shemayim. Now, in order to attain Yirat Shamayim, a person or any, any good midah that a person has to have, he has to delve into it. He has to think deeply about things. Like a lot of the things we do here in Eshu, is we cover things superficially. I say a lot of things and in hopes that you retain a percentage, some percentage of what I say, and you're going to delve into it later on. You're going to take, let's say I talk for two, three hours. You're not going to remember the three hours. I don't remember the three hours, and I said it. So you're not going to remember the three hours. But I'm hoping that one, two, three, four, five, ten points, depending on your abilities... And you're going to retain a few of those points. What does it mean to retain a few of those points? You're going to continue to think about those points and develop them mentally. And now, the next time you study on your own or again in in, in another shiur that we do, you're going to look for those points again to be repeated in another perspective. You're going to constantly look for it. So for example when we learn Sefer Bereshit. We learn Sefer Bereshit this week. Parashat Bereshit. Now, anyone that likes Torah codes uh, will see that there is a, a lot of Torah codes that you can find throughout the entire Torah Uh, one of them is that in Sefer Bereshit where you on the first word Bereshit if you go to the uh, letter Taf in the first word which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet and you count 50 letters you get to the word Tehum and you count 50 letters And you get to the word Vayera. Vayere. uh, And then you get count 50 50 letters. You get to the word Elohim. Now, each 50 letters, you get another letter. And you end up spelling the word Torah. End up spelling the word Torah. Now, there's many places in the Torah that you can find the word Torah without codes. What's interesting here is that the Professor Shor... That found this specific code says it's very interesting because we see here already in the first verse of the Torah that Hashem already has the instructions of when to give the Torah which is seven weeks plus one day after Yetziat Mitzrayim after we left Egypt it was seven weeks plus one day seven weeks plus one day is seven times seven plus one which is fifty so we already see in the word Bereshit, in the word, the first word of the entire Torah, we can see the secret of when we're going to get this Torah. When we're going to get the Torah. Five, you know, Seven weeks plus one day. Fifty days after uh, we uh, we uh, exit Egypt. Point is, is that anyone that wants to look, for example, so now you learn this here. Okay, I just gave you something that you may or may not heard before. So now, the next is this, this May affect you in one way or another you're going to continue thinking about it and you're going to go home and say okay what else can i find in this word bereshit what other secrets is there in this word bereshit what other secrets are in this parashat bereshit what other secrets are in this and you're going to look into it on your own either mentally or actually you're going to look into it or perhaps you're going to like the fact that I found the word Torah. And you're going to say, where else in the Torah does it say Torah? Which is a common word, but I'm giving you an example. Maybe you're going to look for something else. So you'll also see that, for example, in a... Uh, another code that you have in this uh, Sefer Bereshit is uh, in the verse that you say on Shabbat. Yom V'chol The one that you say before Kiddush. That actual verse is a combination of two verses. It's the last two verses. It's the last two words of the verse that says the, the last the end of the sixth day, and then uh, it's the beginning of chapter two that talks about how the Hashem created Shabbat. The point being is that if you talk, if you use Torah codes there too, uh, you count seven letters in the verse that talks about Shabbat. You'll see the word Israel meaning that Hashem gave Shabbat to Am Yisrael. So, this is just off-the-cuff, pure Siyah that I'm coming up with this stuff that's telling you, I have the codes already, but I'm seeing how I'm connecting this to what you guys, your question is that this specific lesson of finding Am Yisrael, finding Shabbat, finding Torah in this parasha may affect you in a certain way and you'll now want to develop that thought on your own. Maybe something else that I said, like the story about the Chazonish, may affect you. And you want to find out more about that. Or something else. The point being is that in a shiur that I'll talk two or three hours, I'm hoping that you're going to retain a certain percentage of that shiur. 5%, 10%, 20%, 50%, something. That's why I tell you guys to write notes, because that gives you a much higher... Uh, Success ratio a much higher likelihood of retaining more of the information Uh, Because when you write something down the Chachamim say it's the equivalent of uh, reading it seven times So Once you retain some information you're gonna go over it and you're gonna develop it in your head and now you're gonna start look for looking for it in different places and as you look for it in different places in different shu'im tomorrow, the next day, a week from now, five years from now, whatever. That thought that began with a simple sentence or a simple chiduz can develop into a whole book. So that's that's a uh, a person that is learning for the sake of Hashem. He's, he's learning for the sake of learning. He's eventually going to arrive at everything. He's going to arrive at Yirat Shamayim. He's going to arrive at all the good things in the Torah a person that's not learning for that reason, he's learning this chidush to prove his friend wrong. He's learning to impress somebody. He's learning to make money. He's learning for the wrong reasons. His thoughts are not going to be, are not going to develop the same way. They're going to be much more limited. And in essence, he's not going to arrive at the truth. So, if a person learns fashma, eventually they'll arrive at the truth. If not... He can live a life of seventy years and still think and make himself think it's true. we have a Hashem. Uh, first part of this Mishnah next week. Hashem, I think we have a shiur on uh, Sunday. Wow, this is great. First of all, Sunday, Sunday. Hashem, we'll have a shiur uh, about the amazing questions about God. I'm not sure if shiur, there's going to be a shiur on Tuesday and Wednesday next week. Definitely not Wednesday. Tuesday, I'm not sure. Uh, I'll uh, keep you guys... Actually, wait, hold on. Tuesday, What's the date Tuesday? Tuesday the 10th? Yeah, so no shield Tuesday and Wednesday. No shield Tuesday and Wednesday. I'm away. Uh, but there's going to be shield Bezal HaShem on Sunday. On Sunday there's going to be shield Tuesday Wednesday I'm going to be in New York, Bezal HaShem. So uh, uh, no, don't worry, I'm coming back. Just for a day. Uh, it says, Amen ve'amen.